You're listening to TGC Q&A, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition Podcast Network. On today's episode of this limited series titled Faith and Work, you'll hear from Bill Davis as he answers the question, how should we think biblically about end-of-life care? Bill is a professor of philosophy at Covenant College and the author of the book, Departing in Peace. My background in medicine is 27 years ago, I was told by the chair, chair of my department at a university in Ohio, the local hospital needs somebody to, to be a community volunteer on their ethics committee. Um, I think you should do that as community service. I was, I was teaching ethics already, and I did, uh, after doing that for a year, I added a bioethics course to the curriculum at the college. And so I've been teaching undergraduate, and, and then I've done seminary-level bioethics courses. But my medical training, insofar as there's any medical training, is just being on ethics committees and having friends who were doctors, usually friends that arose out of the work on the committee. So I've been a volunteer, of continuously a volunteer on ethics committees for 27 years. And the, the reason that my the practical work has focused on end of life decisions is because that's far more than 70% of what hospital ethics committees deal with. Hospital ethics committees usually are not uh, in the weeds of experimental design. So if there's going to be human subject research, so that in an undergraduate or graduate uh, bioethics program, you would give pretty close attention to the history of mistreatment of subjects of medical research, the problems of expanding comfort. So how you do this safely, what, what counts as exploiting people, all of that, Conf- confidentiality, informed consent, all the things that go with medical research. So you do the theory about that, but ethics committees in hospitals and in large teaching hospitals might be doing research but the ethics committee, and it used to be that the ethics committee decided whether the work was appropriate. But anymore, the legal part of it is complicated, and there needs to be a separate institutional review board where the members of the members of that board not only know the ethics, but they know the pharmacology and they know the medical practice, and they know, and they also know the literature well enough to know is this something worth risking exploiting people over? Well, I don't. Um, I've been invited to serve as a volunteer on an institutional review board, but at the t- it was a long time ago. And at the time, I just I didn't think I knew enough um, about, the, about the the fact background. I could do the ethical theory. So ethics committees do that that are not doing uh, institutional review board review board work. They really do two main things. They they advise families and the medical team when there's confusion or a disagreement. Worst case a disagreement between the family and the medical team about what comes next, uh, whether to whether there should be a do not resuscitate order on a patient, uh, whether the ventilator that's been, that's been on for 10 days and the person is um, unconscious and humanly speaking, not likely ever to regain consciousness. Uh, the medical team at that point, whether they're Christians or not, and uh, one of the, I mean, some of the, one thing I've learned is I've served served on deeply dysfunctional secular ethics committees 
deeply, profoundly, troublingly dysfunctional. And the Roman Catholic Ethics Committee that I'm been, I've been serving on for the last 20 years. So I've I've kind of seen the range of what they might do. And what I can't the, the good news out of all of that is that the most dysfunctional ethics committee I think possibly I was on the worst one in the country still thought that defending life is what doctors do. And so even in that setting, when the doctor said, um, "Isn't it time to turn it off?" What they were what they meant was medicine has done everything that can be done. We've reached the end of, so all the machine is doing now is flogging, they would sometimes say a corpse. Now, of course, it wasn't a corpse, <laughs> but to, to the non-Christian description of it, when you can smell rotting flesh and your, your flesh can begin to decay before you're dead and you're not responsive, you're, not, you're probably not experiencing anything at all, your, your awareness, and yet the machine's still on, your heart's beating possibly with electronic support and your and the ventilators pushing air into your lungs and pulling it out. So as long as the autonomic system there is running, the you're still alive. Um, well, so even non-Christian doctors look at that and say, the medicine is not accomplishing anything productive. We're not, it's not, it's not comfort. It's not restoration or cure or whatever word the hospital uses for that goal of care. And so they're just frustrated. And it isn't, um, they're not thinking about the money. They're not thinking we need the bed. That's one thing that COVID did is that it forced everybody to say, so at what point would we say we need your bed? <laughs> we need that ventilator. Now, that one, not like we're going to run out. The, the hospital where I volunteer, we never, we never tripped. We had to get to 75% of the ventil available ventilators in use before our triage alternate standards of care policy would kick in, but we had to write the whole policy. It never, we never got there. We got to like 71% of available ventilators, but never went over the line. So we never had to say no to anybody or take somebody off, uh, but we had to be ready to. And we had to know how we would know which of the 36 people who were on ventilators were the one to give it up and go to a less successful mode of treatment for the sake of making it available to somebody who would, who would, where the total benefit would be greater. Um, but so that's one of the things that hospitals had to do because for the most part, the, you know, the American hospital system uh, has capacity to absorb even that kind of surge. And so even though hospitals have on their books policies about the allocation of scarce resources, They've, the last time anybody had to worry about it was H1N1 in 2009. So like 12 years of, and so people are taking out policies and like dusting them off. <laughs> uh, how do we translate? It's an entirely different, not entirely, it's a really different pathogen in terms of who it threatens because H1N1 threatened 20 year olds, not 80 year olds. So um, that's the sort of thing I've been doing. So uh, you learn a lot of medicine passively. Um, especially if you sit next to the head of intensive care medicine at every meeting and you, everybody's talking about CRRT and they all know what they're talking about. It has something to do with kidneys. I can tell that. So I, I lean over and ask, ask my friend uh, and he says, that's a continuous renal replacement there. Anybody who wants it to go on for more than three days is evil. <laughs> Not only would I get a little bit of medical education, I would get some, some nice evaluation too. <laughs> 
That's right. Um, you know, so it's it's much better than looking things up on your phone. Because uh, you, you've got a doctor, because the doctor's going to tell you, here's what everybody in the room thinks that phrase means. So uh, one of the things that when you teach undergraduates, so these are on their way to medical school or nursing school or something. One of the things you have to put into the course is just a straightforward test on medical terminology. Where they can, And there, there are great online tutorials. If you know Latin and Greek, not to speak, but if you know the Latin and Greek words, uh, Greek roots, it's really not terrible learning the medical terminology. So the students have to establish proficiency in the medical terminology so that they can make sense of the a doctor's description of the case. But then they still, we still practice asking, even when you're embarrassed that you don't know. So how would you, like, you don't know what that is. How would you ask in a way that won't disrupt the conversation and make people laugh that you don't know? So we practice all of those things, but it's really fun to, uh, students get into it. They can see why this might matter, but the students who, like, they all quickly see that it's going to matter. But the ones who have no trouble are the ones who had a loved one um, if they were, so if they were close to, so my 20 year old college students, three of the five students that I had in this consultation class had had, had been in the hospital, in the waiting room when a grandparent had to listen to their parents, got to listen to their parents, talk to the doctors about the choices that had to be made. And they found it fascinating, but they also felt powerless and their parents felt powerless because there was so much that they didn't understand. Um, and one of, the, one of the hard facts about end-of-life care right now, and probably it's going to stay this way, is up until around 2000, if you were in the hospital and you were nearing death, the person who would be there to help you and your family understand what was going on, and if you're unconscious or the medicine is making it hard for you to tell what's going on. So the family's going to have to make the decisions. You're going to be talking to the doctor who's been doing physical exams on you your whole life, like for a very long time. So it's going to be somebody you know. And when, when it just comes down to, you're going to have to trust me. You can. That doesn't happen nearly anywhere anymore, other than in very small towns where they probably don't have an intensive care unit at all. Um, uh, so see, there's a trade-off here, but almost anywhere with large enough to have an intensive care unit, they have staff physicians, intensivist hospitalists who are, they are specialists in this sort of thing. And you want them to be the one who is responsible for your care. You want them to be uh, the physician of record because they know how the hospital works. They can get it. If they think there's a test that needs to be done they can get the test done in minutes rather than days. Whereas your personal physician doesn't know who to call. Um, the hospital system is so complicated. Doesn't know which nurses um, are going to give a long and careful description of what's going on and which nurses are going to give an efficient description of the, what's going on. Whereas the intensivists, this, they're staff physicians. But it means that when you're in the hospital, you're dealing with a stranger. And so they're never going to say, trust me, but it's going to be in every conversation. I'm giving you very hard. We've now reached the point where, uh, in my case, when my father was dying, a doctor that I'd never met and at this point didn't trust because his sense of whether my dad could speak for himself was, I thought, wrong. <laughs> but so he said, but he gave me the news. Your father is never going to leave the hospital. I didn't trust him, but I was also pretty sure that there is no doctor that would say that unless they had a really good medical reason for it. It wasn't that 
he was tired of taking care of him or that he thought that, that my dad's life was worthless or that because his health had deteriorated to this point that he should just go and die somewhere. Um, I didn't think it, I, I trusted the medical judgment even when I didn't really like him. Um, but that's a hard without a lot of experience talking with doctors about end of life cases. Um, I think that my trust in this person that I didn't know at all in a like in another city, it was in Washington State. It wasn't in, wasn't around here. Um, I think the experience meant that I had seen enough of these cases to know. You know, that's actually a pretty reasonable thing for a doctor to say. Uh, but if if I didn't have that experience, I would want to talk to somebody who I knew, who I could trust, who could say that sounded important. <laughs> uh, do I because it's gonna it like an awful lot is gonna depend on whether that's true. Do I? Do I trust him? So I think that's part of one of the things the book hopes to do and one of the things I hope to communicate to my students is that there are ways that you can help people that you don't know terribly well. It's that you're going to either give them or ask the questions yourself where pretty quickly you'll be able to tell, okay, the doctor does care about about my father, even though I that was too quick. Uh, he does care. He is a professional. The judgment that he just gave um, I can base other decisions on the judgment that he just gave. And uh, that's, you want to get there because until, uh, if you're advising someone who's making end of life decisions, they, they need to, they need to know two things. They need to know what is the medical condition and then they need someone else to help them remember what the person who uh, can't speak for themselves anymore valued. Now, ideally, you know, <laughs> what they valued uh, and you and you, but if you've got siblings or they have siblings there are other people who know them well people from church if you're not from there um, you get other people into the conversation and not just go at the more you can depend on other people to confirm your sense of what they would have valued so here's let, let's go difficult and uh, possibly grisly someone's never going to regain consciousness and you're talking with them about, so what do we do? And the doctors are saying, let's, let's go to the, the hardest of all. The doctors are saying, we think that now's the time to attempt to wean them from the respirator. And one of the things that we think is likely to happen is that they won't be able to breathe on their own and they will then die. We don't think they're ever going to regain consciousness. We think that all that the all that the ventilator is doing is pushing air in and out of their body to keep the autonomic system running. Um, and here's, here's the money question. Would he, your dad, would he want that? Not, do you want that? Not, do you think that would be best? Uh, they want to know, would he want that? And, and in a, you know, a humane, but most hospitals would say, um, why don't you take a time as a family to talk about this? And, and then spiritual care people might say, would you like to pray about this? Which is great. And together, you'll try to remember what, what did dad say? And if there wasn't anything together, you're going to have to try to agree. Would he want, and, and then everything is in play. Would he want to spend the tens of thousands of dollars a day that it will cost to keep this machine on with no, humanly speaking, reason to think that he will regain consciousness? And... I've talked with people who said, yes, that's what he would want. He would want everything done until the money was gone, but he wouldn't want us to spend our money to keep it on. 
And what I have to say to people like that is, I think that's something he can choose. Um, I'm not sure that he can choose to spend other people's money. Uh, no, that's actually very, very difficult because there are Christians uh, for, um, I, I think, sincere reasons. I don't think, I don't think it's right. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that I don't end up in the same place. But there are Christians who think that life is, is of infinite value. And therefore, as long as it's possible to secure either through uh, taking on debt or for expecting the hospital to forgive what you owe them or expecting the government to pay for it or something like that. No, but, but seriously, because if you can secure the care, you're obligated to secure it because life is that sort of thing. So I, I don't end up there. Um, I think that we can. Uh, we say, how would Jesus have me use the resources that I currently have? Well, money's one part of it, but time and energy and talent and opportunity, those are all things <laughs> that are part of it. But money's a part of it. And that turns out to be one of the hardest things for Christians to talk about because it immediately feels selfish and icky. As long as we can keep money out of it, it'll be a matter of principle. <laughs> no, I think the principle is that Jesus is asking you to use faithfully everything you have, and the money is part of it. And especially, so my advanced directive says that if I'm not going to regain consciousness, so I'm irreversibly unconscious, uh, per, you know, permanently unconscious or permanently confused. Um, and my reasons for, uh, for the reasons for treating permanent confusion like uh, permanent unconsciousness is that if I'm permanently confused, as far as I can tell, I'm deprived of all of the spiritual joys that go with corporate worship, the, the reading and hearing the word of God preached and the, the participation in the sacraments, those are the best things in the world. And as long as you're keeping my keeping me alive, I don't want to say my body because that's me. Um, as long as I'm being kept alive in that condition, I'm deprived of those things. So, and that's a great burden. I think being deprived of those things is a great burden. And so, and having resources that might be spent on other gospel purposes is also depriving me of something. <laughs> it's depriving me of using those resources in a way that, because if I were conscious and could make decisions, I could say, please don't take me to the hospital. Let me die peacefully in my sleep and go spend the $200,000 that you would have sent to the hospital and the doctors. Um, I'd like that sent to the gospel coalition. <laughs> for that matter. Um, I could do that, and I would, it would be biblically permissible for me to do that if I were conscious. So what my advanced directive says is I give you the power to make that choice. I have that, I have that authority from Jesus, and I'm giving it to you, uh, my wife or my brother, the lawyer, or my brother, the pastor. Um, I give it to them to make that choice for me, which is all the hospital wants anyway. What they want is for someone to say what I would choose. And so, and the hospital, if, 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 um, if my wife says, he wouldn't want the money spent on this. The hospital is going to be stunned because nobody ever says that, but they would still say, that's what we need to know. <laughs> it would be legal. And it's, that's, it's always been pretty unproblematic that it would be legal, but it's been a much more difficult matter for Bible-believing Christians. Um, and there are good, I think, good and important reasons and ones that I hope I take seriously. Um, we're not allowed to be the cause of our own death. 
So we're not allowed to have either to cause our own death or to give someone else the permission and means to cause our own death. So assisted death with dignity, ha, um, those, um, even though it's legal, um, it's still not appropriate because my life is not mine to start or stop. But, uh, and the phrase, so I'm pretty sure I don't give credit in the book to Gil Mylander for the formula that I end up recommending in the book. I had to read the fourth edition to find out how it was different from the first three, all of which I had read. Um, he, utterly a fantastic. Um, I, don't, I don't agree with him about absolutely everything, but uh, when I grow up, I'd like to be Gil Mylander. But so I ran across the, the formula that I had been using, having forgotten that I'd gotten it from reading him, which is pretty embarrassing when you're an academic. You really ought to remember and give credit. Uh, but, but the formula is that we are biblically permitted to choose a shorter life over a, long, over a longer one in order to accomplish, and here I change his wording slightly, uh, gospel purposes, in order to accomplish great goods, I think is the way he puts it. But uh, what it means in, um, in the way he talks about it is to accomplish what Jesus would have you accomplish with your resources. And so we're not talking about the difference between living at living for 20 years rather than 80 years. We're talking about living seven months longer. And like, like suppose, I'm, suppose I could live nine. I have a, a condition that means I'm going to die either in two months or nine months. And in order to live nine months longer, I'm going to have to be nauseated and probably confused for all nine of those months. But if I don't, use, if I don't pursue that treatment, probably chemotherapy is what I have in mind here. If I don't pursue that treatment, I'm going to get, it's going to be like somebody's turning down the dimmer switch on a light. I'm going to get very slowly, there's going to be, there's going to be a buildup of toxins. I'm going to get a little more confused every day and I'll have a little less energy every day. And it, but I'll be able to meet with my family and go to church and everybody will know you need to come see me because you've only got about a month to get here for me to be able to recognize you and carry on a conversation. But please come see. Um, I'd like to, I would like to see you again as if I've been reconciled to all of you already. And I can imagine someone saying, easily imagine someone saying, there are people that it'll take me two more than two months to find and to seek their forgiveness. I want to live the unpleasant life in order to pursue reconciliation with those people. Um, that's what I would advise someone to do. I would say it's worth feeling sick and confused if it's going to take that long for you to track them down and get together with them. But all of those end up being the result of the same question. How would Jesus have me use all that I have right now to pursue what Jesus values? Not, I mean, ideally, I value what Jesus values, but not perfectly. Uh, and often you, it's very helpful to get other people to say, what do you suppose Jesus wants me to do with my remaining energy, talent, and wealth? So that's, that's the uh, decision procedure that my wife is going to be considering. So she's supposed to ask a doctor that she trusts, humanly speaking, what are the medical likelihoods? Okay. How much time does he have? Is he going to regain consciousness? Is he re going to regain the ability to make decisions for himself? Um, and if the answer is no, then it's okay. Definitely keep him comfortable. Don't do anything to cause him to die, uh, but don't be aggressive in your use of medical technology. Keep him comfortable. That is a very clear part. Uh, 
uh, I want to be comfortable. And there aren't any doctors who are going to say, yeah, we're okay with watching him writhe on the bed. So the, like, believing or not, the doctors are going to want to, and nurses are going to want to keep you comfortable, but they're also going to be really happy with permission not to be aggressive. If the goal of care is comfort, say, well, so we've become aware of a cancer. <laughs> And it's not a cancer that's in the, he's going to die before the cancer causes discomfort. And he might die a little sooner because the, the, the because of what the cancer is doing to his overall ability to fight the other dysfunctions. And then my, yeah, don't, don't do surgery for the cancer. Don't do chemotherapy for the cancer. Um, yeah, he'll die a little sooner, but if it doesn't affect his comfort, now, if I get a urinary tract infection, please give me antibiotics. That's a new condition, but it will affect my comfort <laughs> uh, unless I'm unconscious. But even then, I think I want the antibiotic. Not a big cost. And who knows what your interior life is like when you're unconscious? We don't know. And I, I think I want, even if I'm unconscious, I know that if I'm confused, I want the antibiotic. <laughs> but, but these are really hard conversations to have. Um, they're hard for two reasons. One is it's really no fun to think through what it'll be like to die. Christians, I think, should find it actually kind of fun to think about what it will be like to be dead, <laughs> to be on the other side of the process of the dissolution of your physical frame. But it's not any fun to, to think through, how exactly do I expect this to go? Um, both of my grandfathers died of heart slash stroke events. Yeah, that makes it likely that I'm that there's going to be something. So I'm more I'm 61 years old. I'm more vigilant about the blood pressure management and the medicine and uh, low sodium diet, things like that, because well, because of the family history. Well, so when you start thinking about, so how is it likely to end? And you start game planning and you start talking to your spouse and your siblings about if I can't make choices, how do I want, how do I want these to go? Um, well, all of my siblings are believers, which helps. I know that when the whole family gets together, so when my wife gets everybody together and says, okay, I'm pretty sure he wants this. Let's talk through. Does that seem right? Uh, it'll be all believers in the room, all of, all of my siblings and all of their children. So even if it's the superset of 40-something people, um, it'll still be all believers talking about it. So I have a high degree of confidence that even though my wife will be leading that discussion, that there won't be a lot of disagreement. Uh, even, even, even though I do this for a living and teach it to other people, it was hard to have that first conversation with my family. It's, they don't want to think about it. I didn't want to think about it. I, who ask other people to think about it, didn't want to think about it. <laughs> and so and so you push, you have to push yourself to think about it because they need to hear it from you in order for them to make, in order for them to say what you would say and not for it to be something that they keep going back to and asking themselves, did I do the wrong thing? They probably would get it right even if I never, they never heard me say, if I'm permanently confused, please do not start chemotherapy. Uh, no matter how aggressive that cancer looks, I'm ready to be with Jesus go ahead, say no. But they probably would have ended up there after a conversation. But they still would have thought, did we miss something? He's dead maybe a week earlier than likely than he would have been if we'd started the chemo. 
And then they start second guessing themselves. And then it adds to the challenge of grieving. And so it's, it's better that they hear it from you. So you, you really, people should push themselves. Uh, there are relatively fun, fun, not fun. Uh, there are less painful ways to do it. Uh, one way is to, one, one of the purposes of the book is for people to read through the, the stories, the, the chapter that has stories of choices that you know, I help people make, real people. I help these real people make these choices. And to read through those as a family and say, so what do you think? What do you think the loved one would say right here? <laughs> um, and so, you, it, because for that chapter, I stuck to real people. It's not a perfect set of covering the most likely. That was one of the trade-offs in the book was I thought it was important to describe things that had actually happened. And I think if I had a medical background, if I had medical practice in my background, I would be able to just pick. I've seen everything. So let's pick a representative sample of the most likely outcomes. But and it's an okay one. And the doctors who reviewed the book have said, that's a pretty good set of likelihoods. But So that would be one way to do it. Another is to watch movies about people who are dying. These aren't happy movies, typically. But you can get comedies about just at one level, sort of death humor. You can get movies where their comedy is in part connected to having to make hard cases about somebody who's in the hospital and dying. And watching those together with family members and saying, like, right, I don't want that. Like, that thing, don't do that to me. And then you heard it out of their mouth. And then when you have to make the decision, I do remember them saying, we were watching this movie and they said, don't do that. And then you don't do that. Because you remember what they said. Um, or reading books re reading books together about... So you might read something like um, Me Before You or see the movie Me Before You, which is dreadful, both of them. Yeah. It's like, and like even more dreadful because it was written and acted well <laughs> for what it's worth. It's like, did you have to? Like, really? Um, so the, the book is... The book, which I read first, is frustrating because... From a non-Christian point of view, it's really hard to see what was wrong with the reasoning. If you don't know the value that God places on your life and that your life is not your own, that it's not yours to do with and to manage, to control the time and manner of your death as your last act of defiant autonomy. If you don't know that, the movies could be kind of beautiful. Um, you know, the willingness to help him realize the only ambition that he has left. Never mind that the ambition is self-destructive and literally in this case, self-destructive. So you might watch a movie like that and talk about, so why wouldn't that make, you know, why wouldn't you want that? Well, because my life isn't my own. So that's a way to make progress because it, it does really help the people who have to make the decisions that they can remember you saying things about it rather than you having to stitch together and infer from things they said conclusions about how they'd want their care to go. Uh, so it's very hard to do it from a workbook. So do you want to be resuscitated if you have massive kidney failure and your heart stops? What else is right? I need to know more uh, than that. Uh, am I reconciled? Like maybe I want to be resuscitated because tomorrow the guy that I, uh, the guy whose reputation I maligned is coming into town uh, and I wanted, I, I need to seek his forgiveness. And he, yeah, please <laughs> resuscitate me, uh, keep me on the, the renal replacement therapy and keep the ventilator letter, letter going. And then you can pull it out for me to gasp out my repentance. So yeah, um, I just need to know more. And so it's probably 
following any conversation is better than no conversation, though. So something I haven't said yet, and that is that the scriptures are clear. Death is an enemy, but it's been defeated. So it's dangerous. It's kind of like um, a live wire hanging from a telephone pole. If you if it doesn't, you know, it can't hurt you if you don't touch it. Um, death is going, unless Jesus returns. So just this afternoon, somebody asked me to sign a copy of the book. And, and I wrote, here's hoping that Jesus returns before you need the book. Because he could. I think Jesus could come this afternoon or right now. That'd be fine. Um, but because of that, even though death is almost certainly going to be unpleasant, it's not something to fear as the undoing of you. Um, it's, it's the undoing of the connection between uh, your bodily parts. But we are immediately with Jesus um, and we want to be faithful to the end, which means that even when you are down to a handful of breaths, um, and let's let's say you're down to a handful of breaths and you're conscious, like uh, my dad was. He was conscious. What he wanted was he wanted the people around him talking about the things of the Lord. He wanted to be he wanted to be part of singing praise to Jesus, talking about what Jesus was doing in our lives, talking about what it meant to be uh, part of what Jesus has them doing in the world. So he was participating. So he was still in it all the way to the end. And so when you're down to only enough energy, but he'd also, one of the last things he said is when um, I've been paying the Neptune society uh, to take my body and bury me at sea for years, I've been paying them a few dollars a month. There's a card in my wallet. When, I'm, when I've died, call the number and they will take care of everything. So he's still thinking of us, but it was part of what it meant to him to be our dad, but it was part of being a faithful father, was that he had gone ahead of us so that we wouldn't have to find 12 death certificates to send to the insurance company. There's a whole bunch of stuff that comes. Uh, so you want to take, you want to be a, a faithful father, in my case, so that your children, so that you limit the burden that you put on your family members. But that's all part of right now, I've got the energy and the time and the money and the information I need in order to serve my family in that way. And when I get close to the end, they're going to have to carry out those wishes, but they'll also, that will be an extension of what it meant for me to serve Jesus. They will be doing it for me. I think if you, but this is just true about all the choices we make, the choice about uh, whether to join you for this conversation today was a choice about, so what's the best use I can make of the opportunity that the Gospel Coalition has given to me to talk about it? Yeah, definitely say yes. Um, yeah, and do a little preparing. <laughs> So uh, I got through the list of things that I knew that, you know, based off of your prompt, I, I did end up talking. Oh, no, there's one other. Yeah, here's the last one. Take the legal steps to specify your agent. Every state has a form. It's either called a durable power of attorney for health care or it's called an advanced directive. Uh, I don't think any state still calls it a living will. Uh, they've got a form and it works super well and it's really simple. But if you take the step of specifying the person you want speaking for you, it will dramatically simplify things for your family and for the medical team almost. So I, I can't, well, no, that's not true. Here's the only way that it won't work. If you've got a family member who is obnoxious and willing to go to court, and if you've named someone else as your agent and the obnoxious person who's willing to go to court shows up and says, I know better than the person named on that document what they want, and I'm willing to sue to make it happen. Okay, yeah, that happens. 
once a decade for me, but when it, so, but you can, if, if it's been done, if we've got the document that says, this is the person that we look to, then it simplifies every, you are far more likely to get good, the care that you would want quickly and with minimum hassle for your family, if you've identified an agent. So if you only do one thing, identify an agent. And if you only do two things, identify an agent and talk to the agent about what you want. So that when the family says, we don't know, they can be, you're the person who you chose to speak for, you can say, I do remember talking to her about it. And that almost always the family says, oh, that does sound like what she would have said. So that helped. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Faith and Work series on TGC Q&A. For more gospel-centered resources within our network, go to tgc.org forward slash podcasts.